So Christianity, how do you see it? How do you view it? What lens do you look through? So when I was younger, it really looked a lot like rules and judgment, kind of fake. Like who could look the holiest? I would never be good enough to be accepted into a church or into a youth group. And I really honestly felt like God hated me so much that there was no way that I could ever be good enough to be a part of what the church body is. I'm sure some of you have felt like that before. Maybe some of you sitting here today still feel like that today. So what I found more often than not is Christians seem to understand the Christian story through a moral lens. They approach the Bible with morality. And what I mean by this is that they approach it like these are the things that I'm supposed to do and these are the things that I'm not supposed to do. And these are the things that make Christianity. That's what Christianity is, a list of do's and don'ts. And yet the other way, and I would argue the correct way, is to actually approach it with a redemptive understanding of Christianity. And so here, we, so here we, I want to explain this redemptive lens. Some of you might not be familiar with the Bible, so I want to give you like a flash of the story, and I'm going to do that pretending that we are watching or binge watching a Netflix series. So there's a new show. It's coming out. It's called Redemption. Bum, 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 bum. We're all excited. You watch the trailer, right? And you want to see if it's like worth your time. So you check it out and the trailer looks good. The music looks good. It's your favorite actors, your favorite actresses. The special effects look amazing, right? So you're now deciding whether you want to order your evening, your life to start watching these episodes. So you're like, okay, well, I'm just going to try the first one and see. So you watch the very first episode and it's called creation. And you're sitting on the couch and all of a sudden out of nothing bursts everything and it's good and it's beautiful. And you just, your soul is starting to ache as you watch nothing coming out of everything. And it's beautiful. And there's this man and there's this woman and they're your favorite actor and your favorite actress. So you're paying even more attention and they're in love. And it's this kind of love that makes your heart ache and long and desire. And then the episode's over and you're hooked. And guess what? Netflix has this thing, and it's like in five, four, three, two, one, the next episode's gonna begin, so you're not going to bed. And so you start the next episode, you know that tomorrow's gonna be rough at work, it's getting late at night, but you're in. So episode two starts, and it's called The Fall. And everything goes wrong. Everything unravels. Everything that was beautiful in episode one is now broken. The beauty of creation is broken. The love relationship is broken. Everything is broken. And now you're not going to go to bed because the next episode is going to start in five, four, three, two, one. This one's called reconciliation. And oh my gosh, what is this one about? You don't know. You kind of start stress eating on the couch now. And you know, you're trying to get, see everything get put back together, but it's kind of weird because there's this person who comes in and starts putting things back together and he takes the man and woman and he puts them back together together, but not before they're back into their design. And he starts taking what was fractured and starts to fix it again. 
and you can feel this. You're like tearing up and you're like, this is unbelievable. And so now you decide, okay, that's it. I'm calling in sick tomorrow. It's two o'clock in the morning. I'm watching the last episode. It's an hour and a half. I'm just doing it. And you watch the last episode and this one's called consummation. And the last episode is not everything being put back to the way it was in the beginning but is made more beautiful and more grand than you could even imagine. And then the credits roll and you're sad because you know it was the most perfect story ever and now it's over. And you're also kind of sad because like, what are you gonna do with your life now? You've just finished a series, right? So now you gotta figure out what you're gonna watch next. Now, are you following me? I'm trying to explain the story if you're not familiar with it because the reality is our creator God, who creates everything that is good, right and beautiful, then sin enters the cosmos and it's fractured, all of it. And God doesn't move from his creation, but he moves towards us in sending his son. And Jesus reconciles people back to the father and in the end consummates all things. Now, if you're looking through life through a moral lens, God expects a certain level of behavioral lining up. And I better do that, and if I don't do that, God's gonna be really angry with me, right? That view of things is false. There is a moral vision in the Bible, and it's not to be avoided, it's not, you need to consider it. It's just not the main point. And if the lens which you understand, the Christian faith, the lenses by which you come to the Bible are moral lenses, and not that you've been invited into the only story that defines reality, I'm gonna tell you, you're going to live a life that's just going to be half-hearted on earth where you're constantly running into walls and ceilings and can't figure out why. So I'm gonna give you my main point and I want you to write it down or put it in your phone or take a photo, but this is what I want you to remember at the end of my message today. And for some of you with a like massive church background, this will be hard to hear. Are you ready? Yes. You cannot do life for Jesus without doing life with Jesus. We read that again. You cannot do life for Jesus without doing life with him. You just can't do it. So the moral vision that you see in the Bible, you cannot do it without being with him. You cannot live the Christian faith without Jesus. It's not a moral vision. It is something deeper than that. It's relational. It's a redemptive vision. And the reason so many of us find this so hard at times, so life-sucking at times, is we're approaching Christianity with a moral lens instead of a redemptive one. So we're gonna look at that today. We're gonna look at living a life with Jesus. Explore what I've heard people say before, our withness, our withness with Jesus. So we're gonna dive into 2 Corinthians 5, that's where we're gonna be the whole time, uh, 14 to 21. So this is Paul speaking, Apostle Paul. And the first line, 14, says, for Christ's love compels us. I'm going to stop right there. I think it's important to notice right out of the gate Paul's motivation. 
What's driving the Apostle Paul forward? What is the compulsion behind Paul's missionary zeal and his love for Jesus? The compulsion that's driving him forward is love. So this compulsion in Greek is actually a quite common verb used in the New Testament. And it means to hold together, to hold fast, to press uh, around, to drive forward. And almost every place it is used, it implies or suggests some sort of pressure or shaping or forming. So a good way to picture this is what happens to coal underground, right? It's just pressed and pressed and pressed until it turns into a diamond. And that's the language that we're using here. And Paul is saying, what's driving me forward is not guilt, it's not shame, it's not fear, it's the love of Christ that compels me. He's saying within the context of these next seven verses we're going to read that it doesn't matter what anyone says about him or thinks about him, he is being driven forward by a very specific love. How freeing would that be? How freeing would it be to live in such a way that you actually didn't care what people thought or said about you? And I'm going to out some of you here right now, because the more a man or woman says to me, I don't care what anybody thinks, the more they actually do, right? It's really just this heart cry of validation. I don't care what anybody thinks, but he really means I deeply care. Say something nice to me when my rant is over, (laughs) right? Because if you really didn't care, which I know most of us do, (laughs) you wouldn't even say that. Right? So what's compelling Paul is his driving him forward is love. So when you think about your Christian faith, think about and you think about the understanding of the kingdom of God, what motivates you? What drives you? Is it fear? Is it guilt? Is it shame? Is it pressure? Do you believe that God is there, that you're always disappointing God? Or does the love of Christ compel you? And it gives us a little key on how powerful this love is as we continue this sentence. So because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. One has died, therefore all has died. He's straight up pointing to Jesus Christ. He's saying that in the death of Christ, all of us who are in Christ have died. And you can't punish dead people, right? Like if somebody is dead, what can you physically do to them to harm them? So Paul's argument here is that in the death of Jesus Christ, everyone who actually believes in Jesus has all their sins absorbed by Christ so that none remain. That's past present, future, been handled. Now, that's a profound kind of love. A kind of love that says, you know, you're awkward. This is an awkward stage that's going on with you right now. But guess what? I'm crazy about you. You aren't so smart at times. You make a heck of a lot of mistakes. But I'm wild about you. The more I bless you, the more you feel entitled and you want to take rather than worship me. But guess what? I'm crazy about you. That's a crazy kind of love. I mean, that even challenges parental human love, right? 
And yet the God of the Bible who clearly lays before a moral vision for life says that you cannot fulfill that moral vision without being with me. You cannot live for me and not be with me. So Paul says, I'm compelled by radical love because I'm convinced that one died for all, therefore all have died. He says it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So do you hear that? I'm dead. That sinful part of me died with Jesus on the cross. So I'm compelled by his love. I'm driven forward. I'm surrounded. I'm pressed. I'm motivated by his love. Not by fear, not by my shame, but by love. I'm driven forward by love. And I think it's important to return back to these two ideas of the moral lens and the redemptive lens. If you possess the moral lens, if you're viewing things through a moral lens, your life and those around you, it will be really hard for you to walk in and spend time with and be with Christ because you're going to feel like you're constantly disappointing him. And that he's constantly mad at you. Because guess what? You stink at being good. Right? You do. How many times have you sworn never again to only do it again? How many times have you sworn not this time, only to go, oh yeah, this time, and next time, and the time again? And we forget where sin increases that his grace abounds even more. It's confusing because so many of us grew up in a day and age where the preaching was so moral. And it's not wrong that it was moral. It was just the wrong lens for us to be viewing it through. God cares about morals. We can't get there without abiding in Jesus, living a life with Jesus, and a life led by the Spirit. So if you've got moral lenses, it's going to twist everything around. But I first want to show you in this scripture that God does care about external morality and how we live our lives. So being motivated or compelled by love actually will lead to a transformed life. So living the way he would like you to live. So verse 15, he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died from them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, or fleshly, some versions will say, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Okay, we'll talk about this. So the one sentence that compelled by love, because one died for all, therefore all died. So we've been set free to no longer, you're never gonna believe this, live for ourselves. Now that's a crazy, maybe even a violent sentence in this day and age. We are told from the second that you can breathe modern air that whatever your heart wants is tied to your personhood and you should just go ahead and do that. And don't let anybody stop you from stepping into what you were meant to be. And it's just a load of garbage. It's untrue. Throughout human history, people have understood that their compulsions should not be given free reign in their lives. 
But we live in an age where as soon as we have a boundary, what happens? It's oppressive, right? If there's a boundary or a rule, that's oppressive. It's causing me trauma. And the only way for me to truly be me is to say yes to everything I want to do. Because I need to truly be me and I can't be truly me unless I give in to every compulsion and every need and every want that I want. But he said, I want to set you free from living for yourself. See, I found that the most like miserable people on this earth, the most anxious and angry people on earth are people who live simply for themselves. It's impossible to have any kind of deep relationship or connection if you're the center of existence. Why? Because everybody else has to serve your ends. It's all about you. You want a terrible marriage? Well, you have one person in that marriage that thinks that they're the absolute point of it. And I'm just being straight with you. You have a husband or a wife or maybe someone even in a friend group and the, and the point of everything is that we're doing it for them. All about them becoming everything that they are meant to be, which means I get to do whatever I want whenever I want to do it. It's impossible to be rooted in or connected in a way that actually brings life. This way actually makes you angry and miserable. And why? Because nobody else thinks you're the point. Nobody else. Crazy, right? Because guess what? You think you're the point. And when everybody thinks that they're the point, we have this outrage, right? Like, why are people freaking out on the freeways and on the highways all the time? Why is everybody melting down all the time over everything? Well, because we've been discipled. We've been steeped in an age that says, I'm the point. And when the universe reminds you that you're not, you're angry. It infuriates me that you don't understand that it's all about me, and it infuriates you that I don't understand that it's all about you. And that's what we've been discipled in. This is why things are falling apart. And then here comes the love of Christ. I'm going to set you free from that. Set you free from knowing that you're the point. I'm going to show you that I'm the point. And that everything is going to be rightly ordered when you start to understand that I'm the point. It frees us while it also confuses us in a very real way. So compelled by the love of Christ, Christ loves me. God has reconciled me. He is for me. He's not against me. So I'm being compelled by that love. Not like I better get my act together before everything goes to heck. Get straightened up before he destroys me. Or I better do these good things, you know, so everybody sees them. So then, you know, maybe I'll be blessed in my marriage and my house and my finances and my home. It's not that. It's compelled by the love of Christ. I have been set free to gaze upon his beauty, and then the, that begins to change the direction of my life. It lines the things up in my life to value what he values and to love what he loves. And as I'm with him, not trying to work for him. Make sense? And then we look at what it does to our relationships in our lives. 
He says at verse 16, which we were still, yeah, still in there. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. And so now, not only are we reconciled to God, and God is the point, and we're not the point, all of a sudden, our horizontal relationships with each other start to straighten out. Because I don't view anyone from a worldly or fleshly point of view like I once viewed Christ. So what's Paul talking about once he viewed Christ? Paul thought that Jesus was the problem. He was super religious, super moral. He despised Jesus, though Jesus would lead because he thought he, they would lead people away from this Old Testament way of life that was clearly mapped out. So Paul thought Jesus was the enemy, the one who was going to rob life, eternity, and joy. And so Paul, who was actually Saul then, set out to destroy the church and destroy and kill Christians. And that's the man who's talking. And he's saying, hey, we all do that, don't we? We look at Christ and we go, what's that going to take from me? If I decide to follow Christ, what can't I do now? Or what do I have to do? Or, you know, Christ is just going to rob me everything that I want to do. He's not going to grant me no real, deep, meaningful life. It's a lie. It's been the lie since the very first book of the Bible, since the garden, since the serpent whispered into Eve's ear, it's been a lie that he's not good and he doesn't care for you and you'd be better alone. So now what's happening in this passage, he's saying we don't regard Christ like that anymore. And therefore we don't regard others like that anymore, which means we have to understand that our enemies are not flesh and blood. which increases our capacity to be more empathetic and more loving and more kind to broken people. See, if you view Christianity through the lens of morality alone, then there's an in and there's an out based on morality, based on what you do, and not the finished work of Jesus Christ. So he's saying no longer regard anyone according to their flesh, what that means is when I see people, I don't see their sin. But I see the grace of Christ, right? Pursuing and running after them and welcoming them in. One of Jesus' biggest critiques of the Pharisees was that they set up walls and boundaries to make it difficult to get into the kingdom. Moral lenses... Us, when we view Christianity that way, creates hurdles and obstacles to people who are far away from God, far away from the kingdom of God. Redemptive lenses see the opportunity to invite all, all into the kingdom of God. And this is why Paul talks so much about how lost he was, how bad he was, how he was the chief of all sinners. This is Paul who's talking. It's his way of saying, there's no way you're out because I'm not out. You're in because I'm in. Like, let that encourage you because I persecuted the church. I murdered people. I murdered Christians and grace was given to me. What have you done that outsins the cross of Jesus Christ? If I'm in, you're in. 
That's what he's saying. That's what he does here. And this ultimately changes our perspective of other people. None of this can be accomplished through a moral lens. It's impossible. All that does is let me know that I've fallen short and that you've fallen short. We must look through a redemptive lens when we see people. And then you look where he goes after this, picking up at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God. We reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to, to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteous of God. Now, what I think is really awesome about this part, well, there's a lot of things that are awesome about this part, but he's showing us how this ties with this withness that I'm talking about. Human flourishing and moral vision in the Bible lived out, how closely they are related and tied, which is why I'm saying you can't live for Jesus without Jesus. Paul is arguing here that the energy, the force to live out the moral vision of the Bible comes from being reconciled to God. So this text is just full of withness, right? So what you've got here is you've got a reconciliation that's occurring, and that's a major point of this passage. There has been reconciliation, and the reconciliation is a not a moral one, not a list that you had to do to get this, it's a relational one, a redemptive one. I hope you see that. You were reconciled to God in Christ so that the thrust of our vision for human flourishing and his moral plan that God's laid before us has everything to do with being reconciled to God in Jesus. What God is after is a like a relational connection with you and me that leads to a transformed life filled with the Holy Spirit, setting us free to live for God and not for ourselves. Then that lines up with a life as it was meant to be lived. I want to read Hebrews 4.15 to you. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet with no sin. So why do I bring this up in the middle of this? It's kind of this gut check, this spiritual check, because if this is true, if you have been reconciled to God in Christ relationally, the witness, being in the presence of Jesus, exercising that witness that ultimately transforms us, this passage should just sort of lay across your soul. <laughs> And I want to see if you understand that today. We're going to try something. You don't have to move, but you need to close your eyes. Every single person, close your eyes. Nothing bad's going to happen to you. It's for five seconds. Everybody close their eyes. No distractions, no phones, just close your eyes. So I want you to imagine something in your head. But make sure you are imagining with your redeemed imagination. I want you to imagine God on his throne, sitting on his throne. 
And of course, depending how much Bible that you know, you're going to see different things. But picture him on the throne in all his glory and all his beauty and all his power. And there's Christ. And he's gazing across all of his creation. And then he turns his gaze on you. He sees your thoughts, the thoughts of your hearts, the motivations of your mind. And he doesn't look away. He just stares at you. Picture it. Staring at you. What does his face look like? Is he disappointed with you? Frustrated? Trying to figure out when you're going to get your act together? What was the response towards Jesus in that moment to you now? Look up. I know I say this a lot, but I'm going to keep saying it till the day he calls me home. He loves you. He is not in love with some future version of you. He loves you. He loves you right now with everything that you are bringing to the table. He loves you. And it's just so hard for us, yet that everything that's, it's everything that's going on with this witness and reconciled to himself, he is not in love with a better version 10 years from now. He's in love with you today. Crazy, mad, wild, in love with you. And if we are with him and we've been reconciled to him and we are with him, we are welcomed into his presence. We're even celebrated over in our awkwardness. Those of you who have children, your children go through those awkward stages, right? Awkward, making mistakes, attitude, refuse to listen, refuse to turn their phones off. It's all about them. And you know, it's like us saying, oh, he's so awkward. Like, I can't stand this kid. I'll, I'll come back to taking care of him, you know, when he's not awkward anymore. And when I don't got to do anything anymore. In fact, in those moments, you often find it in your heart in those stages to actually move towards them. This heightened sense of love a desire to protect them, to come alongside them, to provide, to keep them safe. And this withness, this is about God drawing near to you in your awkwardness, in your sin, in your doubt, in your fears, in your struggles, and come alongside you. And I think what you do with that that I just said really shows what lenses you have on your face. So if your life was or is marked by I'm such a disappointment, I've made too many mistakes, there's just no way God's going to bless me, I just know in any moment I'm going to be exposed for the fraud that I am. If that's what keeps you up at night, first of all, I'm sorry and I love you, it's a problem. Because here's a better way to view it. Look at me, I am a fraud. I do doubt more than I wish that I did. I do wrestle more than I wish I would. I do fall short. I find that these things that are dead in me only takes the right circumstance for them to be full and on fire all over again. 
I'm a sinner and I need a savior. I wear no cape. I'm no holier than anyone. Some days I'm holding on with all the grace that God will give me to make it. Anybody else who paints a different picture than that is out of step of the Bible. Like who in the Bible does? If Apostle Paul is saying, not that I've obtained all these things, right? Can anyone here say that I've obtained all these things? No, we're clinging to Jesus Christ, trusting in his grace and believing that his promises are true. That's what we're doing. Some ways to look at this that I think are really helpful when we're talking about this withness, okay? This withness that I'm talking about in this text is being with him, not necessarily living for him a to-do list, but an actual withness that leads to for him. Does that make sense? Leads to for him. It ensures that you are, you're, you're following your calling, your purpose, and these are the two things that are happening that I just read. One, that you've been reconciled to reconcile. So why have we been reconciled to God and been brought into the peace of Jesus? To do what? To help others in the presence of Jesus. So I know quite a few people who are like natural networkers, okay? They seem to know everybody on earth. And they always want to connect you or me, it seems, to other people that they know. Or when they meet you, they're like, oh my gosh, Oh my gosh, I know exactly who you would love. I need to put you two together because you two together would just be so amazing and so incredible. Anybody have that friend? Like they literally know every person on earth and they're connecting people all the time. Well, what happens with withness when you're with Christ all the time, if you're following me, you get to be that friend. Let me introduce you to this friend of mine. He's going to blow your mind away. I mean, this friend that I have, I'm hanging out with him all the time. He's amazing. I just need to introduce you to him. It's going to change your life. I think he's going to blow your mind away. He's so kind. He's so kind. You can hardly even fathom it. He's more generous than anyone you've ever heard of, read of, or even could make up in your head. Like if you imagine the best of everything, he's going to blow past that. I need you to I need to introduce you to my friend. We are reconciled to reconcile, to introduce people to Jesus. If he's with you all the time in every motion, everything that you're doing, and you know how great he is, you're going to want to introduce him to people. But also in this text, you get your identity. Not only are you reconciled to reconcile, and that means wherever you are, this is what you're doing, but you're also a new creation. You're an ambassador. So wherever you are, this is who you are. So I want to talk about that for a second. If you're a teacher, praise God. Thank you for what you do. I learned everything during COVID that I do not want to do that. Praise God, you are a gift to human flourishing and it should be honored, but you're actually a new creation an ambassador of Christ. And wherever you are, you are reconciled to reconcile. So what if you're an entrepreneur, a businessman, a lawyer, a nurse, a welder, a handyman? Praise God on high for handymen. 
I'm sorry. There's so many people who are not allowed to touch their home repairs, and I'm one of them. So without you, I would be in despair. But actually, what you are, my point is, is you're an ambassador of Christ, regardless of all the other titles that you hold. Mother, entrepreneur, lawyer, whatever it is, you are a new creation, and you get to introduce people to Jesus because you're with him all the time. Every minute of every day. So since you're with him, wherever you are, this is what you're doing. So yes, you're a teacher, praise God, we need you. But as a teacher at the, end of the goal, at the end of the goal, the ultimate reality is you are an ambassador of Christ. That's what you do. And then the last thing I wanna cover before we close and worship team can come up, is at the top of this identity and purpose, this calling, this helping make sense of our lives, seeing the story of reality as a story that we're actually in and we get to live. So I want to read Psalm 16:11 to you. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is a fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So where is joy found? In his presence. And so now we have this path of life laid before us that in his presence, full of joy, we are empowered to live for him because we're with him, that withness. But if you take away that withness, take away that um, presence of being in the joy, then all you're left with on this path of life is fear that God's going to be harsh or is going to judge you. And if you don't do that, right? And so if we're honest, and I want to be honest always, sin, because all of us have done it, and fallen into something, sin, as we learn, has a little bit of a shelf life. And what I mean by that is it might taste good for a little bit, and then it betrays us and goes bad. Whereas what God is offering you is something that never perishes. And so really often sin starts out, this is the thing, you gotta know, it's like, it's always a whisper that makes sense. It's not that all of a sudden a demon's going to show up your house and catch your house on fire. It doesn't usually happen like that. What happens is a lie is whispered into your soul and it's a lie that kind of sounds right and it's a lie that is either maybe tied to some of your compulsions that you might have, right? Like the serpent didn't bite Eve. He whispered in her ear, look at that fruit. Isn't that fruit so good? So amazing? You need it. Why wouldn't God want you to have that fruit? Look at it. Look at it with your eyes. You need to taste it. It's the sweetest fruit in all the garden, and he just doesn't want you to have it. And Eve's compulsion's like, yeah, he's like that. He's trying to rob me. He's trying to take from me, despite the fact the whole entire garden is hers. The whole entire garden. And the serpent doesn't strike her in the heel, doesn't pump her full of venom to kill her. He whispers a lie that sounds right, and she agrees with it. And chaos is introduced. And this passage is saying, no, 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 no. The path to life is tied to the joy of his presence and tied to what cannot perish because it's of him. In him, we find joy in life. So I say it to end again. You cannot live for Jesus without being with Jesus. 
Let's stand and pray, and we're going to go into worship. So, Father God, we just come before you now and pray. We pray that uh, we don't just seek to live a life for ourselves, Father, but a life for you. That we walk in this witness that leads us to walking and living a life that's led by your Spirit. Lord, will you help us live the way that we're designed to, Father, the purposes that you have for us? I pray as we do this, we will start to value and love the things that you value and love, and we'll begin to toss aside the things that you don't. Father, this world is full of distractions, and I just pray against those now, Lord, that we start to live for those around us and not for ourselves. It's not about us, it's about you. And I long to live that life, Father, the purpose of serving and loving each other. I pray that we fall in love with your word, like we do with TV programs and movies. Just fall in love with the greatest story that's ever been written. That we long for your word. I pray that it drives us, it compels us because of your love and your grace and your sacrifice. Not our fear or shame or our mistakes, but because of your love and your grace and your sacrifice. I thank you for sending your son. I thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you are in love with us, deeply in love with us right now in this moment, full of all the garbage that we're full of. Help us to see people as you do, Father, through a, not through a moral lens, but through a redemptive lens. Thank you for creating each of us in your own image that we can be reconciled to reconciled and help us with that. Help us be bold in sharing your name and your love to all people. All people, Father. In Jesus' name I pray.